www.ohiohealth.com or call us toll-free at 877-824-3627 or 877-UCI-DOCS. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your show host, Claudia Shambaugh, on Ask a Leader. Today on Ask a Leader, we're going to call it Ask a Soldier. I hope you enjoy the show. We have two very special guests, but for a moment, we'll fade in with this. Thank you for joining us, guests, this morning. We are going to have, as my first guest, Don Fisher, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. Just a little background on Don Fisher. Originally from Steubenville, Ohio, he served during World War II as a tech sergeant in the Air Force. After the war and after getting an education at Ohio State on the GI Bill, He was a forester at the Gifford Pinchot Forest Service in southern Washington, then taking his family to Eugene, Oregon. He worked as a forester engineer with the IRS and then vice president with Bohemia Lumber. Today, we honor Don Fisher during this week of Veterans Day as the survivor of a B-17, also known as the Flying Fortress, which was shot down. His plane was shot down over France in April 1943. Don, welcome to my show. Thank you. I'm here. I'm so glad that you could be with us today. I'm um, Don, you flew on one of the 12,677 B-17 flying fortresses that were manufactured in this country. As a guy from Steubenville, Ohio, tell us a little first about your training. Well, of course, I enlisted in uh, November of 42. I'm sorry, in uh, January of uh, 42, and um, spent the summer in uh, training. And it's interesting you talk about training, how ill-prepared and hurried that everything was. The first air base I checked into in Shepherd Field, Texas, had a bare barracks, uh, no beds, and we had a mattress and an overcoat. And our training there was supposed to be basic training, consisted of learning to march, which we did. I never, uh, while at Shepherd Field, had never fired a gun or had any training like that at all. We took uh, uh, tests at Shepherd Field to show which way we we would be going. And incidentally, I, I and two of my friends ended up at Shepherd Field, uh, high school friends. We all enlisted at the same time. And, of course, like all young men, we wanted to be pilots. Uh, Through uh, tricks of fate, two of them got selected for pilots' training. They ended up in B-24s, and both were killed when they were shot down over Europe. Oh, my. For some reason or other, I didn't end up in pilots' training. I was sent to a radio school in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and then to gunner's training in Las Vegas, Nevada. At one point, you talked about training, uh, Claudia. I wanted to make plain here. Yes, please do. At that point in building up the Air Forces, if you were a warm body and could speak and see, you didn't fail a course. 
But there were no failures. If you're warm, you went on to the next measure. Uh, of course, I did. I did pass the radio course at uh, St. Louis, and then was sent to Las Vegas, where we took gunnery training. They were so short of planes. Then I was assigned to the 305th Bomb Group that was training or building up at that point. It wasn't even in existence yet. It was building up in uh, Dry Lakes, California, Muroc, as a matter of fact. Okay. And again, we lived in tents there and were supposed to be training in a B-17. There was only one, as I recall, one B-17 available for our whole squadron, which meant we got practically no flight time. After, after that, we were supposedly qualified and were to go to Phoenix, Arizona to pick up a new B-17. Well, we got to Phoenix, Arizona, and of course, uh, as you can imagine, the B-17s were in short supply. We didn't get any, so they put us on a train and shipped us to Prestwick, um, no, Syracuse, New York, where we did pick up a new B-17. My goodness. <clears throat> and uh, at that point, we had to, you know, break it in. It was brand new. It had been flown there from Seattle, where they were built. And we did break it in, and I was assigned to that group as a ball turret gunner. That's the man who sits in that little ball that hangs below the B-17. Up to that time, I had only one session in the ball turret and had never fired the uh, twin 50 calibers in that. So that kind of gives you an idea how fast they're trying to push bodies across the water. Well... There were a number, a string of things that you've talked about in some of these wonderfully archived interviews, and we'll we'll acknowledge those people that are keeping this really important record. You were talking about other things. You're talking about your leaving Gander Bay, Newfoundland. You were talking about. We'll talk about that, and then talk about your actual parachute harness. I mean, so many strings of things that you just you just missed having it nail you for good, man. Well, did you mention, uh, say, when we were leaving Gander Bay? Exactly. Yes, well, that's first, you know, and I, I consider myself, uh, whether it's fate or luck, I don't know what. I've survived three plane crashes in B-17s and a parachute jump. And so the first of those lucky ones happened at Gander Bay on takeoff. We were loaded, of course, and we were the la- one of the last planes to take off at night with a group to fly to Prestwick, Scotland, nonstop. And uh, for some reason or other, our co-pilot was changed, and a colonel, as I understand it, took over, and it was a colonel that hit a co-pilot's job on takeoff to lock the tail wheel on the B-17, which landed on two front wheels and a tail wheel. At, uh, if, it, if that isn't locked, at going down the runway at about 50 miles an hour, the tail wheel begins to wobble, and you can't take off. Our plane was loaded with uh, two large Bombay tanks of aviation gas just ahead of the radio room where the whole crew was concentrated except for the pilots and the people in the front. The pilot couldn't get off the ground because of an unlocked tail wheel. We lifted off about 25 feet and then crashed back down, (laughs) slid down the runway in a giant shower of sparks, and for some reason or other, those Bombay tanks didn't fracture, and, of course, with gasoline, we had all been incinerated. Uh-huh. Well, we slid to the end of the runway, and the result is our group went on. We stayed there for another month till we could get another B-17, and then flew on, took off by ourselves in the daytime, and flew toward England. 
as I mentioned, we were everyone was poorly trained to pilots. We're pretty good pilots, but the navigator in this question apparently lost his way flying over the ocean by herself. And uh, at one point, the pilot came on the air after we'd been here a number of hours and said that. Start throwing everything overboard because we're running out of gas and we don't see any land in sight yet. Well, we did throw everything overboard and hope. And finally, at the last moment, they spotted land. It turned out to be Ireland. We landed at a very small field in Ireland, and that's my first experience with peat fires. We spent three nights there freezing with a peat fire, regassed and flew on to Prestwick. And then went on to Shelveston, where uh, Colonel LeMay was our commander, and that was my first experience with B-17s. My goodness. I just want to remind our listeners, Don, we're listening to K. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and we're listening today to uh, the veteran tech sergeant in the Air Force, Don Fisher. Uh, he's ca- talking to us from Santa Barbara, but uh, he's a re- uh, regularly a, a, a citizen of Eugene, Oregon. We're so, so fortunate to have Don Fisher on our show, Ask a Leader, this morning. So, Don, now we're listen- we listeners are following you. You're in England now, and you're, you're uh, about to make uh, your missions over uh, the main continent in World War II. So can you talk to us? Um, I guess what you've talked about so many slips of fate that uh, you survived. Can you tell our listeners, Don, about what happened on the mission where you joined a new crew as a radio operator on April 4th, 1943? Yes, I can. Thank uh, you. Actually, uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Actually, I flew the crew I was with, uh, trained with, and then flew across the ocean. Uh, I flew five missions with them, and understand um, how bad the weather is in England during that time. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was there from November uh, 42 till I got shot down in April 43 and flew exactly 10 missions. The rest of the time we spent uh, flying training missions around England. We did have some time off for uh, to go to London and so forth. But uh, after we got to um, uh, Shelveston, I flew the five missions by the original crew and a ball turret. During that time, um, I never did get the. Uh, during that time, I never did get the fire at a German fighter. The ball turret hangs below the plane, and the German fighters usually attack directly from the front. Well, the radio operator on one of our adjoining planes in the squadron was badly wounded by flak. And since I had a radio MOS, that's your training thing in the Air Force, I was transferred to his crew and flew five more missions. At that time, you were required to fly, I believe, 25 missions. One of the problems was that, at the, that incidentally, that was November to April of 43, the Air Force was losing 35% of the planes every time we went out. Wow. And that and that was pretty tough. And as a result, during the time of the war, they did end up losing 4,500 B-17s and B-24s over the European theater. Spot on. That is a third of the force, as it was reported, how many were manufactured. All right. Wow. That's a huge percentage. I'm sorry about what, that, Claudia? That, that is a huge percentage, Don, as you were saying. That The percentage of 
B-17s lost yeah. over uh, in German combat. That is incredible. Yes, it is. And you feel, when you think that each one had ten men on it, and in addition to that, the condition, the air conditions flying over England were so bad when all these planes were trying to mass up and get together to fly over in early morning. The English bombers were just coming back from their nighttime missions. Oh goodness! So you had American bombers flying in clouds trying to find each other. You had English planes coming back, and the result is. There were 300 B-17s and 24s lost over England in mid-air collisions. Now, now obviously, all those men weren't killed. Many of them parachuted out the same as uh, over France. But that that was one of the hazards of flying at that time. Yes, yes. Well, Don, can you tell us now? I want us, I want our listeners to hear your incredible story of what happened with. That mission, when you were a radio operator on the B-17, on April 4th, 1943. Walk us through as many many of the details and I'll sort of... Um, I'll, okay. We'll work sure. together on this. Please, tell us about what happened that day. All right. Be happy to. Uh, this was a mission to uh, bomb the Renault Auto Works. It was actually making trucks for the Germans on the outskirts of Paris in April 4th, 1943. And that would have turned out to be one of the days it was a beautiful day actually it was beautiful in england and uh, i've read information since uh, uh, put out by the germans that they knew exactly what was happening they their uh, primitive radar showed the groups forming over england and then the direction they went so their their fighters had advanced information on where it appeared the american bombers were going we did form that day, and it was supposed to be one of the most successful bombing missions that the Air Force ever had. The Germans reported that, and the Americans confirmed it, that almost 100 percent of the bombs lit right in the factory area. So with that, there were probably a minimum of regular civilians got injured or killed. And it was a, actually was a picnic trip up to that time. There wasn't much flack over Paris. And we turned around and started back home. At that time, we were set upon by what seemed a swarm of German Falkwolf fighters. And uh, they were attacking from, and I was in the radio uh, uh, cabin by this time, which is in the middle of the B-17s. And we, I could see them coming, and we, a radio operator has a single machine gun, and I did fire that several times, although I just, Honestly, never. I don't think I ever came close to shooting down a German fighter. About uh, 45 minutes or so from Paris, going back toward England, just north of Rouen, we our plane was hit and two engines were knocked out, and apparently the uh, a third one was injured. Well, uh, we fell out. We slowed down and fell out of formation, and began to began to circle in large flat circles. The press procedure was, if you did that, the German fighters really swarmed on you and just loaded you up with shells, which they did us. And in this, and in this thing, the uh, our tail gunner was hit, and his cabin was hit, and uh, he had terrible injuries in his right hip. We heard no information on our intercom from the front end. Well, I found out years, many years later, in fact, just a couple of years ago, that. The front end had had a 20-millimeter uh, cannon shell come through that killed the uh, two, uh, 
top turret gunner, injured the pilot, co-pilot, and knocked out all communication, wow. which prohibited them from telling us you know, if to, to bail out. Well, since we in the back, and I was supposed to be the head man as radar operator, we had no communication. We were obviously going down. We decided to all bail out. Uh, we got the tail gunner out. Then the waste gunners jumped out, and I bailed out. And as radar operator, you, you stand up, so you generally don't fasten the leg harness if you're a parachute. Uh, apparently, I forgot to fasten both straps of mine. Maybe one had been fastened. Anyway, I got to the rear door, and the plane was still, uh, we were still able to bail out. I went out, and I immediately became unconscious, and I came through hanging my parachute. And I looked down, and here looked to be at least one leg strap flapping. Oh. Now, I had seen men who had the same situation that had, had jumped out without their uh, harness being fastened completely, and it slipped right out of their parachute and just fell to their death. Fortunately, for some reason or other, it's another again, a fate or good luck. It happened to me. I came to, and here I was hanging in a parachute on a, in a perfectly gorgeous day like it is in Santa Barbara here today. Yes. There wasn't a breath of air. I could look down, I suppose, fifteen to 18,000 feet and see Frenchmen out walking in this gorgeous, sunny Sunday afternoon, and they could see what was happening up in the air. It was absolutely quiet, just as, as quiet as I've ever heard it. And I've, you don't get a sense of falling until you're below the horizon. I just seem to be suspended in midair. At that point, I heard an engine coming back, and I thought, uh-oh, what's happening now? And uh, sure enough, the German fighter that shot us came back, and I thought, well, I wonder what will happen. Will he shoot me or not? Well, to make a long story short, he circled me looked at me very close, about 100 yards away, saluted me and flew off. Amazing. It's amazing, Don. Well, the Ger you have to remember that the German Air Force was kind of the elite of the German forces, and most of them are not the hardcore Nazis. And like it, whether you like it or not, they perform by what's <laughs> known as the, the rules of war which means you don't shoot an enemy, enemy combatant when you know he's beaten. Well, to make a long story short, he flew off. I went to, continued on down and lit on the ground in a, in a freshly plowed field in the French countryside. There were about 20 Frenchmen standing there watching me come down. And never having made a parachute, I didn't know what to do. But fortunately for me again, there, was no, there wasn't a breath of wind. You just fell straight down like a stone falling uh -huh. and I lit in this freshly plowed field and rolled over on my backside and there was a French doctor standing there oh. it turned out who spoke English oh my god and he said to me uh, give us your parachute and go over and talk to your tail gunner he's over here we're taking care of him he's badly wounded we'll take care of him and then you run for the woods because the Germans know you're here and they'll be looking for you oh my well, I did go over and talk to the tail gunner, and he was conscious. And uh, then I went back to where the Frenchmen were, and they said, run for the woods, get, get to the woods. Well, that's what I did. I ran for the woods and hid in that the rest of the afternoon. That's just amazing, Don. You're, I want to remind our listeners, 
You're listening to Don Fisher this morning. We're calling it Ask a Soldier. And Don Fisher is tracing us through a fateful uh, stint in World War II, where now we have him hiding in the French countryside in April of 1943. So you are now, you are without any resources. You're living by your wits at this point. Tell us how um, you managed to meet, uh, how did you start? You met with some very courageous uh, French households in that countryside. You managed, they set you up with uh, getting you out. You've got so many things to say in such a, in our morning show. Tell us what you'd like about any of those households before one of those households set you up to leave uh, for Rouen. Yes. Well, the first one, uh, of course, when I lit uh, and ran to the woods, I stayed in the woods for the afternoon. And uh, there was a very large French farmhouse about uh, a quarter mile away that obviously owned the fields where I was. So I stayed there until afternoon and crept up to the outside the house in late evening. And I remember to this day, I could hear a couple little French girls shouting at each other with their very high-pitched voices. <laughs> and I heard the name, like a French name like Cecile or one of the French girls' names. And I stayed, I stayed there till dark then. And when it got dark, I went up to the door and knocked on the door. And lo and behold, one of the little girls I had heard before answered the door, and she just looked at me and said, Papa, and the father came running over. He looked at me, just took me by the front of his shirt and pulled me in the door. Wow. Well, the little girls could speak enough English uh, so that they told me, <clears throat> excuse me, that I could stay there that night, but I'd have to leave in the morning because the Germans were looking for me. And uh, during the uh, parachute jump, I'd injured the front of my face, although in the excitement I didn't realize it. Well, they cleaned me up, and it wasn't serious. It was bruises and cuts and that kind of thing. And I did stay there that night, and they gave me enough food, and they said, oh, you have to leave. Well, what was I to do? I started south. It was a bright, sunny day, and I could tell the directions. So I walked through the woods for all that day and uh, got to the end of the woods about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> and uh, here was a little French farmhouse, a very little one, uh, sitting down the road on the edge of the road. So I stayed in the stone quarry where I was till about six o'clock and then a man came pedaling home on his bicycle he had a french beret on and as you see many of them a typical french cigarette hang, hanging out of his mouth he went in the house and i stayed there watching it pretty soon he came out and walked down the little lane ahead of me and came back uh, with a goat leading it by the rope and as he approached me i just stepped out of the uh, brush and he looked at me didn't say a word, and just crooked his finger like, follow me. So I just followed him into the house. And one thing that's interesting here, I spoke very little French, almost none. They spoke no English, and we had an English-French dictionary. And if you want a uh, difficult time, try to converse using a French-English dictionary on both sides. Anyway, uh, Claudia, I stayed ended up staying there for almost four months, and through a fluke, they got in, we got in touch with a person who was a member of a beginning French underground group. He was a longtime friend of theirs, and he said, I think I can get papers for him, and we can get him to Paris, 
And then at that time, they were sending all the flyers and the escapees. We were called uh, evader of capture or escapee. They were sending them to Spain. It was fairly easy to travel by train then, even with the proper papers. Well, they kept me there for, uh, well, let's see, four months. And then they said, well, it's about, you know, through this broken French and English. Yes. It's time to, for you to uh, go to Paris to meet the man there who will get you on the train to go to France, go to, uh, to Spain. Spain. Mm-hmm. And we did take, I'd taken several uh, training trips with them on a little train at Renan de Veron, which is uh, in Normandy. And they said, well, you have to be able to see Germans around and uh, soldiers and not flinch or talk or do anything. And they said, one thing to do, we're going to get you tickets on a train from Rouen into Paris. You get in and sit down in the regular compartments they have there and don't say a word. And when you get to the station in Paris where you are, a man will meet you carrying a briefcase with a piece of flexible tubing hanging out of it. Wow. Well, I'd never, I'd never been to Paris before, and I didn't know what the jam the the people would make or anything. Well, Don, Don, one thing though, you're French, and they're or they're English, or you're broken pig, uh, uh, Franglish. It had to be good enough so that you'd know what that tube. I mean, you had to know what they were describing. That's not an everyday product. Well, there's one thing about it, Claudia. When you're when you're uh, subjected nothing but French. All the time you're awake, you begin to pick up quite a bit of it. So you knew exactly what kind of an article you were supposed to look for. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, well, uh, no, they just said there'll be a man, and you know, innocent me. I had never, coming from Steubenville, I never <laughs> had any experiences like this. Right. And so I just had to go on what they said. Well, the day of the uh, when I would get supposed to get go to Paris. I went over, got on a little train uh, that went into Rouen, got in the station. We had done this on one trip before, just yes. as a uh, trial. And I did do it right. I found a train that was going to Paris, and he went down several stairs and got on this train and got on in a compartment and sat down. And lo and behold, across from us, me were sitting, came in and sat down three German soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he sat three on a side in each bench, and then beside me were a pair of uh, French people who had bought their own food and everything else. They also said, as far as anyone's concerned, you're deaf-mute. <laughs> so hey, the train from Rouen to Paris, as I recall, it stopped a number of places, took about, oh, two hours, I guess. And during that time, the Germans talked themselves. They looked at me. I looked at them. They looked at the French. And no one spoke to one another. And so then when we got to the Paris but train Don, station, Don, and I forget which one it is, Don, they're all huge. And many people, were thousands were traveling by train. As I got off the train, the hundreds of people that were getting off the train and then people coming out to get on, I thought, how am I ever going to find anybody? What am I going to do now? Well, after about five minutes, out of this crowd... Here came a man walking with a briefcase and a piece of flexible tubing. My goodness. But, Don, I, I think you're, under, you're undervaluing how much you kept your cool together on that two-hour train ride in the proximity of those German soldiers. <laughs> Claudia, I don't know. Well, I was frightened before when I made a parachute jump, and we're frightened on the missions. 
But that is about as frightened as I've ever been for a long time and not be able to move or do anything. That's incredible. So I, I just want our listeners to appreciate that. We're t- listening to Don Fisher, who was a tech sergeant on the in the Air Force on a B-17 when he was shot down, and he's taking us through his saga of leaving the French countryside. He's on a train, and he's now in Paris, uh, where he's going to figure out where he's going to go next and hide for an indefinite period. So please walk us through how you were hiding in France, how you got connect your connection then with that gentleman with the briefcase. Well, it, after I met him, we I followed him, of course, not knowing what else to do, and uh, we went outside and sat down in a little cafe where he bought some kind of a drink, and we drank it. And he spoke no English again, and my French, as you can imagine, after four months of immersion, was pretty uh, basic. Anyway, a few minutes later, we got on the Met- Paris Metro, I believe they call it, and went out to his place, which was a perfect place to shelter someone. It was a large three-story, old-fashioned uh, uh, rock or brick and rock home, and like many French places, was surrounded by a 10-foot wall. So once you got inside, you're completely isolated. Well, I ended up staying there, uh, let's see, that would have been in late fall. Uh, I ended up there staying there for the rest of the time until the uh, French and Americans came into Paris in September of 44. During that time, um, Food was short, of course, but they shared everything they had with me. And I kept wondering when we were going to try to get, uh, you know, go to Spain. Well, they kept saying, well, it's not ready yet, not ready yet. And and I I remember in either December or January, the man came home one day all excited and in his good French, and I never really grasped what was going on. Apparently, the people that had helped me in Rouen had been picked up by the Gestapo. And, of course, it had frightened him, thinking he might be next. At this point, he took off on his bicycle and went down to uh, the part of France which was not yet occupied by the Germans, the so-called Vichy France. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, he said he'd be back in a month or so. Well, it turned out to be like three months before he came back. And when he did come back, uh, of course, I was left there with the wife and the fifteen-year-old, twelve-year-old boy. But we seemed to we seemed to have enough food and able to get along. And I don't really know how that was, how that happened. Anyway, he came back, and he said, "Well, you know, there's just nothing. We're broken. I have no way to get you to Spain." In the meantime, they were getting the French underground, and you could. Um, apparently the word was spread around everywhere. Obviously, the Americans were preparing for um, to land in France. And they said, the word was, well, you know, you've been here this long. You're just going to stay here till the Americans get here, and that'll be in short order. Well, you all know about how long it took the Americans from their landings in June to get to Paris. So that was around September. Yes. And that time, they said, there's nothing you can do. You just stay here, and uh, we'll be very careful. And uh, the Germans, were, of course, were under pressure and really weren't searching for anyone at that time. So we ended up staying there until, and they were listening on the uh, radio. You huddle around a very small radio and listen to the broadcast from England. And, of course, they could follow the invasion and how it was happening. 
and of course they just we just stayed in the house until the Americans and French came into Paris. Well, Don, I want the listeners, we're talking to Don Fisher here on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM, and Don Fisher is talking about his uh, saga after having his B-17 shot down in 1943. He's in Paris at this point of the story. So, Don, you, you're, I think um, you're underestimating, uh, um, too, the kind of trials you are going through being so uh, so cloistered, uh, out of sight from anybody. I remember uh, when I was uh, much younger, because Don, for uh, full disclosure, folks, Don Fisher is an old, old family friend of my family. And I remember there was this part of your story that was told to us um, when we were children, that you decided to risk it one night or one day, and you wanted to go see a movie. Was that in Paris? Yes, it was. In fact, when I first got there, we ended up going to we ended up going to two movies. They were seemed very blasé, and of course, I didn't really didn't know any reason. I couldn't say any reason why they couldn't. We actually went out walking in the streets, and this was in a suburb of Paris called Colombe. It was a very quiet residential area, and we did actually go to two French movies. Of course, they're in French, and I didn't understand that much of it. But then after the second movie, they said, they told me in our broken French and English again, you can't leave because the Germans are so short of labor now that they're picking up any able-bodied man, and if he doesn't have the right kind of a job in France, they're shipping him off to Germany to work in their plants there. At that, they said, there won't be any more going out on the street. You're going to stay here, stay away from the windows and do the best you can and hope everything goes well to the Americans and French get into Paris. And what month was that 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 message came out? Oh, I'm going to, I can't remember. The, my guess is that was probably, um, oh, March or April. So that's a long while between then and September. Okay. Yes, it is. And, you know, uh, amazing enough, I try to think back what I was doing at that time. And you often wonder why you didn't do certain things. Why wasn't I studying French to learn to speak French better? Who knows? And I'm not sure what I did. Well, I think you're probably trying to keep your psyche intact while you're living in uh, certain kinds of deprivation, in uncertainty, and, um, uh, you know, living by your wits. I think living by your wits, who's going to pick up a French course? Well, I did actually, you know, during that time, I did learn to speak French very well. Yes, yes. And the the, the, the fine points, I couldn't construct a complicated sentence, but I could understand pretty well yes. what they were saying. But, uh, of course, you have a hard time replying back. Right, exactly. Well, um, you talked about the, um, now, the, oh, there's so much to talk about here, Um when the Americans were coming, you realized, though, uh, you weren't going to go straight to the Americans. What was that all about, Don? Well, when the, when the Americans actually approached Paris, uh, and the French force was uh, subsidized and armed by the Americans, and and it was agreed with the um, the uh, Allied commanders, the French would be should be the ones that came into Paris. When the Americans got close to Paris, they just held back and waited for the French forces to come up behind them. And the French forces were the first ones that came into Paris. And then, of course, the Americans, with all their force, were right behind them. 
And as, of course, as they came into Paris, it turned out that I was not the only person being hidden. There were literally hundreds like myself. Really? They were hidden for different different uh, amounts of time. I was, of course, I've been the longest one that was hidden by the French that I've heard of so far. And uh, when the, and one day after the they had occupied the French and Americans had come into Paris, I was there in uh, Champs Elysees, Champs Elysees, when they marched down and could see General de Gaulle. And then we all went back home. Well, everything was calm, and a couple days later. And by that time, the neighbors knew who I was. By that time, uh, a group of Americans came through the area, and they had word, they'd received word from somebody that there was an American in that area. The only problem was that when they got to our place, the French had been so happy to see them that they had plied them with any sort of alcohol they had. Mm. And when they got to our place, they were all mostly well inebriated, and the French people said, there's no way you can go with them. You'll get killed if you go with them. So I stayed there uh, for a couple more days, and then one day a British delegation came through, and it was very proper and very sober. And the neighbors uh, met them and said, oh, we know where there's a man. So then at that time I went out, met the British delegation, and that began my return to the armed forces of the U.S. My goodness. Well, I, when I'd read about that part, about the holding off with the British, I thought that was pretty incredible that, um, you know, you had to wait for a different liberator than your own, uh, you know, patriots. Well, I wanted to um, ask you about, um, you know, you benefited from the GI Bill uh, after the war. Um, and But I, I want to, since the um, audience here have hasn't had this lovely story. I'm going to figure out how we can make sure they can uh, get a hold of the, the longer version of this, that you um, you were lost, you were a missing in action, and uh, they had considered you dead um, in the war, your family and the Department of Defense. So you had an insurance policy that, um, what was that worth? What were you worth, Don? Well, sure. Every soldier was worth $10,000. Wow. And at that time, if you were missing for a year, the... Uh, and Defense or Air Force or Defense Department declared you officially did, and your insurance was paid off. And of course, they paid off my parents with the ten thousand dollar policy. And they were um, my father had a very good job in a steel mill. And they so the money that was sent to them was just simply put in the bank. And to make a, a long story short, after well, they as far as they knew, I was dead, and. Uh, the first word to them was a telegram from me, and I can't remember that whether that was sent from Paris or from uh, um, my base in England. The first word that they had was that I was alive, and I sent them a telegram, and I forget to this day what I said in it, but with some words so that they would know for sure who it was, that I was alive and well and I'd be home in so many days. And uh, that was the first thing they knew that I was alive. Wow. Well, then when I did get back to Steubenville and, uh, you know, the celebrations were over, you asked me about the insurance policy. Well, the government was right on the ball. <laughs> they got right on the ball and asked my parents to send the money back, which they did, of course. Wow. They'll, they'd happily part with that. It, I mean, it, I've heard the description of just how, how really, um, I mean, what a, what a send 
what a home turn that you had. And you, you also, your younger brother, Jim, was a parachutist, and he had also... Um, he was also down during World War II in Italy, and his his experience was very different from yours. I don't know if you could give us a minute or two of just about his situation. Well, you're right. Uh, Jim, my brother Jim, was a paratrooper, and he'd been through the African campaign, and uh, and then the invasion of Italy. And like many things in the war, there were mistakes made. And from the story I heard from Jim was that uh, they were. Um, on the, uh, they were to be dropped behind the German lines on the Italian mainland at nighttime. Well, that, the planning was fine, except that when they were dropped out of the planes the wrong time, they landed practically in the middle of a German camp. Oh. At that point, they were all captured, of course, and were trained and marched up into Germany. And my brother ended up uh, being captured in, and spending the rest of his time in Germany till the Americans came in. Uh, he was in a prison camp, and then he was sent out to work on a German farm. And, uh, and of course, at that time, the, and the incident, the Germans were very proper. They reported everyone who was captured or information they had on them to the Red Cross. So my parents uh, were in, um, they knew that my brother had been captured, and they were able to send him a few food particles, and I'm not sure whether they ever got to him or not. But they knew where he was and what was happening. So they they had that kind of certainty. But it must, this must have been, I mean, an, and I don't want to uh, trivialize it and call it a roller coaster ride. But they had two. They had. Were there any of your other brothers also serving in World War Two? No, I had an older brother, and he was uh, he had a family and was, uh, of course, exempt. And my youngest brother had a, a heart problem and could not get into the. Uh, armed forces no matter what happened. So just the two of us were in them. So your family had to roll with those punches, literally speaking, figuratively speaking, with um, uncertainty and a, cert- and a likely loss as far as you were concerned. And, and they're wondering what would happen and with um, Jim being overworked in the as a POW. Well, I, I want to uh, take a moment to say how much I appreciate the Lane County Historian Society article um, that 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 historical society having published a, a quite a wonderful piece and is it also your story is written up in the National Archives, Don? Uh, yes, yes. There there is a society uh, for we who were who were bailed out over France. There were like um, well, there were ten planes. As I told you, around forty five hundred planes were shot down or lost for some reason or other. And uh, uh, that meant 45,000, approximately 45,000 men. And out of that, about 10 to 15 percent, I'm not sure what percentage was, were able to evade, and that's avoid capture or weren't killed. And there is an association called the Air Force Escape and Evasion Society. And, of course, now, as you must know, I'm 92, and most of the members of that society are well up in years. And there aren't that many of us left. We started out with close to 5,000. Now there are approximately uh, 200 of us left. And I do go, we do have meetings. You do. I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about that because when you – it's so – this you're peerless, your society. You, uh, you just have each other to really relate to what happened. So tell us about them. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just – I'm marveling that there is such a group intact that you, you can actually relate to one another. 
Yes, there is. We do have have meetings, and I've been to the last four or five, and we have another one scheduled in Texas uh, this April of 2011. And it's uh, none of the men that I know in in the uh, Air Force, because they're just scattered. You know, they're all from all over different groups. It just happens to have the, have had many of the same experiences. Excellent. I'm so glad to hear about that. And I want our listeners on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine listening to Don Fisher today know that this resource, I, I looked at up the National Archive. It doesn't make it easy. I was trying to find your name, but um, after uh, the air, I'm going to find out um, what's the means by which we can look up specific individuals um, so that we can see the, the complete story. Well, um, I know... Um, I, I was wondering whether you were able to meet because our mutual friend Vernon Swain meets with his B-17 uh, peers. I don't think, have you met with Ber- Vernon Swain in the last uh, 25 years? You know, um, I did forget something that is kind of important. Yes, please tell the, us. The pilot that shot us down, of course, he was a member of a of a leading German Air Force family, and his brother actually became chief of the German Air Force. And he had four brothers, three brothers, and they were all in the Air Force. And uh, two of them got shot down and killed. And one of them was a pilot that shot our plane down. In later years, I was able to, the Germans were very good at record keeping. In later years, I was able to get a copy of the German records on the raid that we were on, that we got shot down on, written by the pilot who shot us down. So I was able to trace him, uh, not I, but a friend of mine traced him through uh, the uh, Internet in Germany and found out that he had been, in turn, had been shot down in August of 1943. Wow. So he was shot down and killed uh, later on. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, Don, it's really incredible, and we're so lucky that we could hear your story today, and um, I wanted to find out uh, as we're closing. Well, there, there's two things. One is, uh, are you were you able to maintain any connection with those French households that hid you in 1943, 1944? No, you, you have. To, well, we did uh, for a number of years after that, but you have to remember, I was like 24, and the people that I was living with were in their early 50s. Okay was obviously they've been deceased for a long time. And I was never well acquainted with the, the uh, in fact, I don't know what happened to the young boy who lived in the house where I was in Paris. I have no idea what happened because we didn't get in contact with them for a number of years after the war. And then we did go back to Paris, my wife and I, one time, and were able to trace the place where I'd stayed. It had been torn down, and the large apartment house was built in its place. Oh, my. So at that point, I lost just complete track of them. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm sure they knew, along with their compatriots, what an important service they fulfilled, and that uh, the that re- was its own reward, and uh, they know they know how important their was, work was, and they, they knew by the kind of man you were with them, how much, you know, you were so grateful to them. Well, that's right. In the interview in Paris, at the time, uh, the uh, 
they they uh, interviewers I remember it said you do not have to worry about these people you want to keep in touch with them later on you can but you belong in the Air Force we're going to send you back to the United States, and we will take care of the people who sheltered you. Uh, we, and I'm sure, as you said, they did honor that. Well, there was one uh, sort of for a close for the show. Um, I wanted to um, re re uh, present reflections of a quote of yours in the end of this article in the Lane County Historian Society article. It said, and I quote from you. In later years, I thought, what a disaster. There I was, dropping bombs on a people I didn't know and who might even be my friends in a different world. Bombing was inaccurate and impersonal at best then. What have we learned in the almost 61 years since the war in Europe? Not much when we still use inaccurate technology to solve difficult human and international problems. But mostly, I'm an optimist. I like to think we still have a chance to grow up and solve differences without weapons, with help from people like the courageous French families that save so many. And mm-hmm. end of your quote, Don. Do you have any other reflections since saying that six years ago? <laughs> well, you know, I said it, and uh, I guess you have to be hopeful. Although the way the world is right now, it makes you wonder if we progress very far from. What I said before, <laughs> it, 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 I am hopeful, but, oh, I say that with a word of caution. I really wonder. Well, it's, that's, those are grave words from the optimist that you are. So um, um, we'll, we'll leave that mature content with the, the listeners to carry around and uh, see where their role. That's why I usually call this show Ask a Leader, because I want people to see where they have they have something they need to mobilize and do something with because all of my guests have mobilized in incredible ways and you're 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 the most you're my get John Don so okay. you are all so right. I want to thank you for being my guest on this installment that I'm calling Ask a Soldier on my show during this Veterans Day week Don it's been a pleasure and a thrill talking to you today well thank you Claudia it's a pleasure of mine. I was happy to share it, and I hope uh, some people uh, appreciated what some of the problems were. Well, thank you so much, and give Laurel my love. Give John and Marion my love, your family members, and we'll stay in touch. I'm going to keep this record recorded show for your family for posterity. Thanks again, Don. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye, Claudia. Bye-bye. Des yeux qui fondaient les miens, un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche. Voilà le portrait sans retouche de l'homme auquel j'appartiens. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas. Je vois la vie en
des nuits d'amour à plus finir. Un grand bonheur qui prend sa place, des ennuis, des chagrins s'effacent. Heureux, heureux, à en mourir. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas, je vois la vie en rose. Well, thank you, listeners. Right now, um, you're, we've got just a few minutes left on Ask a Soldier today. I want to bring on, just for a moment, because we don't have much time left on this show, my other guest I'd planned to have talk with us, Corey Miller, who is a first lieutenant with the Air Force, who's served two tours of duty in Iraq in uh, Operation, uh, Corey, tell me again, I have Operation Iraqi Freedom, correct? Yes. And so what I want to do is have Corey say hello for just a moment and uh, uh, ask her to appear on a much larger stint on another show where I would like to plan for Corey to appear with... Uh, uh, Nathan Woodenside, who is um, all, who's also served uh, in Iraq, at least two tours of duty. Corey, just say hello to our audience here in uh, the uh, the small band of Irvine, and then um, the and beyond on w- streaming live on KUCI.org. dot org. Well, hello. My name is uh, Corey Miller. As she mentioned, I am a first lieutenant in the Air Force, and it's nice to be with you guys today. Well, I'm so glad that you were making yourself available. I just didn't want to have my World War II veteran who's on a roll. I didn't want to cut him off at the knees, especially when I knew there was more in this chronology of how he was hiding in France, and I didn't want to end up before he got to all the exciting material. And, of course, there was still a lot more for him to talk about. So, so Corey, I want to schedule you for another time and have our listeners uh, really revel in the important a narrative that you have to contribute, and we'll schedule that this side of uh, the new year. <laughs> uh, we'll find out when you're available and when Nathan's available and make for a, a wonderful show. Please give your spouse uh, my regards, and thanks for coming on for a moment, and I'm looking forward to you having a much, much larger share of the show. All right. Thank you very okay. much. I will. Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care, Corey. Bye-bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was our show today where we were privileged to have our whoops a very special guest on to talk about what was an incredible journey in World War II both in terms of the training and in terms of what was happening in hiding in France so what we want to do now is um give our disclaimer our legal disclaimer the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the management of UCI Radio, nor those of the California Board of Regents. I want to thank you, listeners, for listening. And next week, my show is going to be on the topic of longevity. I have a friend who will be celebrating her 100th birthday, Eula Guthrie, and we're going to reflect a little bit about her, and we're going to take longevity to some other areas as well. So thanks for listening. After the show, you're treated to George Had a Hat with Senior George Rosales. Take care.
Bien que je sois chelou, un peu vilain, pas voyou, même pas méchant, pour dessous tout, juste innocent comme vous, même si comme vous. Parfois j'ai un peu de mal à aller jusqu'au bout, j'avoue. Johnny plus d'une fois j'ai pris mes jambes à mon cou, c'est fou. Je suis plus fort pour ramasser, pour donner des coups. Et à force d'en prendre Johnny, vous voyez flou. J'ai quelques vis, mais je suis pisse, bien plus clean que le palais de la justice. Si je fais les vieux os, faut pas que ça soit à l'hospice, profite, même si c'est que ça glisse, avec le vent comme complice, 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 avec le vent comme complice. Johnny belle gueule, hey, Johnny ferme la grande gueule Johnny dans le fond, je sais que t'es seul ma gueule Johnny be good, good, Johnny be bad Johnny was a good, 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 good man Johnny t'es pas non, je sais pas ce qui la dérange Tu sois poli ou non, dans le fond, je vois pas ce que ça change Johnny pourquoi tu te connes, te renfronne la trône à grand coup de bonne, hey, Johnny sans vergogne Johnny savait mais là c'est plus et puis t'as trop bu Johnny, si tu continues comme ça, ils vont te bouffer tout cru. Johnny aime les chicha, check pas les chnoucha, entre les chuma, d'être la loi pour si peu de maca. Johnny savait pas vraiment ce que je foutais là, mais il y avait du taf alors j'y suis allé, voilà. Johnny, je voulais un peu de crispy et puis rentrer chez moi, mais le temps et les années ont dit ça se passera pas comme ça. Johnny le faux poète à ses heures. Johnny le petit menteur et sa soeur, qu'elle vend des fleurs. Johnny, tu t'es pas levé ce matin pour aller à la messe. T'as préféré rejoindre Johnny, t'as poussé sweet caresse. Johnny, t'en as déjà trop dit, pour croyant en vitesse. Avant que le bitume ne te laisse. Johnny, c'est lui, Johnny, c'est vous, Johnny, c'est moi. Faites bien grave à vous et m'oubliez pas. J'ai quelques vis, mais je suis pisse. Bien plus clean que le palais de la justice. Si je fais des vieux os, faut pas que ça soit à l'hospice. Je profite, même si c'est que ça glisse. Avec le vent comme complice, avec le vent comme complice.